Well, you know, Larry asked me to, uh, to preach, and uh, I didn't know I was going to be the scapegoat. But, uh, and I mean, Jesus was the scapegoat, and I feel like I'm in, I'm just following Jesus here. And um, so, well, anyway, uh, I do want to talk with you um, this morning about uh, a series we're in. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is a big deal. He's a big deal. So let's pray, and I I hope that as you listen, uh, God will help you to see how big a deal he is and how much you need him and how available he is to you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in um, letting me speak to your people. And Lord, you know how much help I need in order to represent you. So Lord, please come. And Lord, bless my brothers and sisters through your word. Pray you would speak to them, you would fill them, would draw them to you. It's in your name that we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when I was growing up, um, if my dad would really get frustrated with somebody, he'd say, ah, that person's full of baloney. And sometimes if, if we see somebody acting arrogant or conceited, we say, you know, that person's full of themselves. My question is, what are you full of this morning? And last night, what were you full of? About 20 years ago, when Mindy and I were between child number three and child number four, One Friday night, she took me out to dinner at the best place in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where we lived. It was called the the City Club, and it's on the uh, 20th floor of the tallest building in Lake Charles, overlooking the lake, sun was setting, incredible view, piano playing in the background. So we ordered our meal, and I ordered veal Oscar, and uh, that's veal steak with asparagus and piled with lump crab meat. Well, a little footnote here so you understand where I'm going. In Louisiana, there are a lot of unique things in Louisiana, but one of the unique things in Louisiana is that during Mardi Gras season, the custom is to bring king cakes to social settings like work or Sunday school or a family dinner, something like that. And then within the cake, they put this tiny little plastic baby. And whoever gets the piece of cake with the baby then is responsible to bring the next king cake to the next gathering. So, so much for the footnote. So, City Club, beautiful night. I'm beginning to pile into my veal Oscar, and I dig into the lump crab meat, and I discover one of these little tiny plastic babies (laughs) on my veal. And I'm thinking, what on earth is this? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's the chef. He was a friend of mine. I knew him. I thought, well, maybe it's Mindy. You know, one of them is playing a joke on me. What is this? Well, I take this little plastic baby out, and I say, a baby? That's the last thing we need. (laughs) Some of you know where this is going. Well, Mindy had taken me out to dinner and placed this baby in there as a way of announcing to me (laughs) that she was pregnant and that child number four our dear little Stephen was on the way. 
And I have many incidents like this in my conversational history. <laughs> so why Larry would ask me to preach is beyond me. Um, but what came out of me that night at the City Club was inside of me. And I was full of work stress and raising three children already stress and a variety of other stressors that were hitting me at that point in my life. And what came out of me that night was what I was full of. Well, Jesus talked about what happened to me. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, Sam's mouth spoke. So what happened was I completely missed the message that Mindy was trying to give me. And I missed her creativity. And I missed her joy. And I even, unwittingly, unwittingly, mind you, insulted the sovereignty and the creativity of God himself, who did, about seven months later, give us our son, Stephen. And mind you, I wasn't intending to be selfish, and I wasn't intending to insult God. I was just being me, which is what I was full of. What was abundant in my heart was stress and a kind of unconscious me-centeredness. You know, I don't know about you, but I am so good at being full of me that I don't even have to think about it to do that anymore. I'm a pro at it. It's my natural state. In fact, it's my default page. And here's the point. What comes out of you, even without you thinking much about it, is what is abundant in you. It's what you are full of. Over time, when you're simply not thinking about it, which is most of the time, what will show up on your default screen is what's inside. What will have its way in your life and will have the most impact in your life isn't what you say you believe or what you know is right, but instead, over time, what's going to come out is what? What you're full of. Well, imagine not being full of baloney and not full of stress and not even full of yourself. Imagine being full of God. That's God's will for you. And it makes all the difference in the world. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about two different things that people can be full of. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. And look what comes out. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, if you're full of wine... It permeates every cell in your body. It goes into your blood. It gets into your lungs. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. And guess what? It comes out in how you act. Debauchery, reckless actions, it ruins your life if that's what you're full of. On the other hand, if you're full of the Spirit and He permeates your soul, it comes out in your body by means of worship and thankfulness and sacrificial love 
and reverence for Jesus. So what are you full of? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be full of God? Somebody perfect and holy and oh so powerful. So we've been doing a series here at North Wake on the Holy Spirit. And last week, Larry taught us about the Spirit as the creator, as the giver of life, and even the completer of all that Christ has done for us. It sounds like he's important. I want to build on that today and show you what the Bible has to say about how the Holy Spirit is the giver and the ongoing generator of Christ in you. The Holy Spirit does that, the Bible says, by coming and not just living with us, but also living in us, by indwelling us, by filling us. A couple weeks ago, Larry also talked about the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. But here's what I want to contend this morning, that although shyness is an apt description of the Holy Spirit with respect to his own role in the Trinity, shyness should not be a description of your attitude about the Holy Spirit. And I think it is. Sometimes I think that even though we are Trinitarians by confession, as Baptists, maybe even as North Wakers, we are binitarians in practice. But that's not what we say we believe. The North Wake Mission Statement says, quote, God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. So is confidence the attitude that you have about the Holy Spirit? That God himself dwells with and in you? Are you confident in that? That God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but instead one of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you listen to and obey the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you? Or do you resist and ignore? Do you worship the Holy Spirit? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? Once upon a time, at the beginning of services in Baptist churches, they had something called an invocation. Guess who they were invoking? The Holy Spirit. Calling for him, for his help, for his fullness, for him to dwell with and among and in them. So, here's my proposal. I think we should think and preach and pray and teach a lot more about the Holy Spirit. Not less about Jesus, not less about the Father, but we should be as mindful of the Holy Spirit as the Bible is, and it is quite mindful of him. In the Old Testament, the, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is referenced about 88 times. In the New Testament, about 260 times. If you want a brief review of the primary chapters in the New Testament, let me give you a reference list of where you will encounter the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The last seven chapters of the Gospel of John, a lot about the Holy Spirit, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts, 
Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Galatians 5. The Bible and Jesus are not shy about the Holy Spirit. And neither should you be. So I want to talk with you about four things today. Really kind of answer four questions. First, why do you need the Holy Spirit? What's the big deal? Second, what is the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit? Third, what does it do? What, what are the effects of being full of the Spirit? And then lastly, so how do I get there? How, how can I be full of God's Spirit? And um, so here's, here's my thesis this morning. You see it up on the screen. The indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit is the actual personal presence of God in those who have been redeemed by Christ that culminates in power for worship and for witness. The Holy Spirit isn't just a fact to be believed. He's a reality to be experienced. And he lives in and is able to fill every believer every day and every moment. God help us. So we're going to do some theology today, actually some pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not just a doctrine to be discussed or a topic to talk about. He's a person to be encountered. We do need to understand what the Bible has to say about the Spirit. We're going to look at that. We do need to get our facts right. But just as important as knowing the facts about the Holy Spirit is getting to know the Holy Spirit, is actually meeting Him. I hope some of you do that today. For some of you, it may be the first time. For some of you, it may be somebody that you've kind of always known, but you never had a name for it. You know, learning the facts about a person is helpful. It's good. But it's no substitute for actually meeting the real person. So I hope that today and every day hereafter that you have a personal encounter with God in person by means of this holy, powerful person called the Holy Spirit. So first question, why do you need the Holy Spirit? What's the big deal? I think Larry told us a couple weeks ago, he said, the entire Christian life happens through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us to God and brings God to us. Think about that. The Holy Spirit brought Jesus to this planet. It says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived in her a, a baby who was a little boy and he was God. Jesus, we are told, also was full of the Holy Spirit. Many times in the gospel, he is characterized as being full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And then when Jesus' ministry was to begin, at his baptism, what happened? The dove descended. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. In fact, I believe that most of Jesus' miraculous acts were not merely done by the man Jesus, 
For a man isn't capable of miracles, nor by him as God, since it says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, but instead that most of, God, of Jesus' miracles were done by means of the Holy Spirit through him. So if Jesus was dependent on the personal presence of the Holy Spirit for power and for ministry, maybe you are too. Gordon Fee, in an excellent book that I would highly commend to you called God's Empowering Presence, wherein he reviews all of Paul's letters and what they have to say about the Holy Spirit. He says the following, he said, for Paul, the Spirit as an experienced, underline that, as an experienced and living, not just a theory, not just a theology, an experienced and living reality was the absolutely crucial matter for the Christian life from beginning to end. To be sure, the Spirit isn't the center for Paul. Christ is, and ever always, but the Spirit stands very close to the center as the crucial ingredient of all genuinely Christian life and experience. So if the Holy Spirit is the crucial ingredient of Christian life and experience, that's a big deal, my friends. You ever make a cake and leave out the crucial ingredients, like the flour or the sugar? That's not a cake. It's not a cake. A Christian without the Holy Spirit is not a Christian. There's no such thing. It's not a cake. It's not a Christian. You ever try to drive your car when the crucial ingredient that we call gasoline is not in the tank? It doesn't go very far. In fact, it doesn't go very far at all. In fact, you don't, you don't even move. You have zero power without gasoline. You as a Christian have zero power without the Holy Spirit. Empowering presence of God, he is. So if you really want to be, and I know many of you want to be, I want to be the Christian man. If you want to be the Christian woman that God wants you to be, and that God wants you to be, you can't leave out the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to be full of and fueled by the Holy Spirit. You can't pull this Christian thing off on your own by means of your own mind or your own morals or your own willpower. That's not how it works. True belief, solid commitments, good values and morals, those are good things. They are necessary, but they're not sufficient for Christian living. It won't work. It's not a cake. Now, there are good reasons for this. I once had a counselee in my office recently, and she said to me, this Christian thing is really, really hard, isn't it? She had recently been saved. I said, yes, it is. In fact, it's, 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 it's worse than that. It's impossible. Well, there are good reasons for that. Our opponents, Satan and sin, are very formidable. The Bible says even that the whole world lies under the influence of the devil. That Satan is still on the loose. He is not yet, although will be someday, thank God, chained in hell. But he's not right now. He's not bound in hell. He's roaming the earth like a lion looking for people like you 
and marriages like yours and families like yours and churches like this to devour and destroy. And in case that's not bad enough, the last time I checked, the evil's not just out there, it's in here. I find it in me. Sin is still present with us. Even with us as believers, it is present. Although it need not have power over us, it is unfortunately present with us and among us. And in case you haven't noticed, it's contagious. And it spreads. And it infects people. And it wreaks havoc. Sometimes even in Christian marriages and Christian families and Christian churches. So, that's the bad news. We don't have a chance. It's impossible. Unless, unless we have help. God's people have always recognized their need for God's presence. Let's listen in to this conversation between God and Moses from Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know who you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight. And God says to him, my presence will go with you. I'll give you rest. Moses says back to him, if your, present, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. So what's Moses saying? It's real simple. He's just saying, if you're not going, I'm not moving. Some of you need to say that. Lord, if you don't go, I'm not moving. Without you, it's useless. You ever try to do something with, even something Christian, without God? You get ahead of him, and God's back there, and you're out here? It's, it's a mess. But Moses recognizes, and he says, if you don't go with me, I'm not moving, God. God. Moses knew very well how deeply desperate and needy he was in order to accomplish some really good things that really needed to happen. So he says to God in verse 16, he says, So how shall it be known that if I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Isn't it in your going with us that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What set us apart, Moses said, is you. What makes us us is, is you. So the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I'll do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses, still, I think, not quite believing this, says, Show me your glory. He's kind of in that Missouri position. Show me, Lord. And he said, and God said to Moses, Okay. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he says, you can't see my face for a man can't see me and live. So get what's happening here. God is kind of saying back to Moses. Moses says, show me. Show me your glory, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm I'll be a believer if you show me. And God, God condescends and is merciful to him. And I think he kind of says, okay, Moses, you asked for it. 
but stand out of the way. I'm not sure what you're really asking for. I don't think you can handle this, so I'll protect you. And then, you don't see this on the screen, the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, by me, where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I'll take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Mark that. We're going to pick that up in a second. Second question that I want to talk with you about this morning is what is the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit? When I had my thesis statement up there, it said the following. It is the actual personal presence of God in those who've been redeemed by Christ. God's presence was a big deal to Moses, as we just saw. And it's always been a big deal to God's people when they were thinking straight. In fact, him actually being with them, that's what distinguished them as God's people. Gordon Fee, in the book I referenced earlier, says, God's presence is the crucial matter for Israel's existence, and Moses realizes this. So he argues with God. Moses realizes that not Torah, not circumcision, not Sabbath keeping, but God's presence first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. So think about the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The other places in the Old Testament where God showed up. Well, uh, Moses ran into God once. He's wandering around the desert, and he runs into a bush. And this bush is flaming, and it's bright, and it's burning, but it's not being consumed. It doesn't burn up. And Moses realizes, this is a holy place. God is present here. God's power present in this flaming bush, that, and yet still wasn't consumed. And so Moses, realizing that this is a holy place, does what? Takes off his shoes. He responds to that. He does something in response to that. It changes how he acts. God showed up at Mount Sinai, gave Moses the Ten Commandments. But before Moses went up there, God said, you know, um, tell those people, don't even come near this mountain and don't touch it or else they'll die. So Moses went up on the mountain and thunder and lightning descended on the mountain the power of God came down, gave Moses the, tab the, 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 the Ten Commandments. Well, sometime later, the tabernacle is built, and the Ark of the Covenant is present in the, in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant is a beautifully crafted box containing the Ten Commandments, and because it contains the very Word of God, it's so holy and powerful that there's a whole list of rules about moving this thing from one place to the other. And if you don't go exactly by the rules, if you don't handle it with care, you die. And two people did. And then later, Solomon built a temple. And God moved. His, his unique presence moved from the tabernacle to the temple in Jerusalem, where there was an inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, 
that could be entered once a year only and only by the high priest and only after he had performed a day's worth of cleansing rituals and atonement sacrifices for himself and then for the people. You see, wherever God was present, the burning bush, Mount Sinai, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, the Holy of Holies, that was a place that was characterized by holiness, blinding holiness, and also incredible power. So under the Old Covenant, these were the ways that God was present with his people. In these places, now, think about how God shows up in the New Testament. There's a drastic change. And this is what the New Covenant is all about. Now, you can see his face. He shows up in person as a little baby that grows, becomes a human, is a human being, grows, becomes a man, John 1 says that Jesus came and lived and dwelled and tabernacled among us. This is a very strong echo of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Jesus came, God came in person this time, as a person, as a human being person. And he is, he tabernacled among us. He is the place where men come into the very presence of God. He is the tabernacle. And then in John 2, Jesus, upon entering the temple, and you remember what happened? Jesus enters the temple, and he sees all this stuff going on there that really, really incenses him. And so he tears it up. And he says, this is my father's house. And then he tears it up. There's something going on here. Soon thereafter, Jesus says, referring to his own body, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to himself, his body. So you see what's happening here. Jesus is relocating the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He's no longer in the tabernacle, no longer in the temple, that's me, he says. And that's why the Jewish leaders were so upset with him. You didn't need to sacrifice. Excuse me. They thought that he was desecrating the holy place, the temple. That he was, but he was actually relocating the holy place from a building, which he tears up, to himself. And he was saying, you don't go in there to meet God anymore. You want to meet God? You're looking at him. So after Jesus, the temple is literally no longer necessary. You didn't need to go there to sacrifice your lambs and bulls. Jesus took care of that. When he climbs on a mountain and lays down on a cross, and as the perfect, sinless lamb of God, takes away the sin of the whole world. The sacrifice was made by Jesus once for all. No more sacrifices need to be made in the temple. So don't we, go, we don't go there 
We don't go to the temple and offer sacrifices for forgiveness so that we can be in God's presence. We go to Jesus. We get forgiveness. And we encounter God in Jesus. And yet, that's not the whole story. When Jesus was getting the disciples ready for his departure, he said in John 16, he said, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. God present in Jesus. But now I'm going to him. I'm going away, he's telling them. Going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So Jesus felt so strongly about this, that he, he said that it would be better for the disciples if he left and that the Spirit within would take his place. Now, that's hard to believe, that somebody else is going to be better than the star player, better than Jesus himself. But if that's what Jesus says, he probably knows what he's talking about. You see, he'd already told them in John 14 that he was going to send another like himself, the text says, another like me to help them. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, which had been the case for God's people all along, but something new is added by Jesus, and in you. This is the new covenant that Jesus activated. So I want you to kind of picture this for me, with me. Suppose you go out one night and you run into LeBron James in a restaurant. So you strike up a conversation with LeBron and he asks you if you play basketball and you tell him about the intramural or the rec team that you play on. And then he says, you know, I'm really sick of Miami. So I'm going to come and play on your team. Well, you'd probably be pretty happy about that. But then, after spanking everybody in the league for three seasons because LeBron James is playing with you, he comes in one day to the locker room and says, you know, um, sorry to tell you this, but I'm out of here. I'm, I'm moving on. Um, I'm hanging up my shoes. So you and, and the team, are you're just devastated. The star player is leaving. But then he says something else to you. He says, okay, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. I'm going to send you another guy, just like me, to play with you. But he's going to do that by being in you. But don't go back on the court until, you show, until he shows up. Well, that's a little bit like what Jesus says to his team in Acts chapter 1. It says, on the day when Jesus was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water 
but you'll be baptized with, soaked in, immersed in, completely full of, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jumping forward to verse 8. But you'll receive power. This is going to be one of the effects. You'll receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples did what Jesus said. They waited. They waited for 50 days. And then 50 days later, in Acts 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished and said, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Jumping forward. So they were all amazed and perplexed. It says, we heard them, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What does this mean? And some said, well, I think they're full of wine. But Peter said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk. Since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, who said, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, Peter here is referring to the new covenant that had been predicted by Joel and then by other prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and even by John the Baptist in the New Testament, that God would come someday and not just be with them as he had been in the Old Testament and then in Jesus, but that someday he would come and actually be present within them. This was the new covenant that Jesus activated by his death and resurrection, and it is actually all about the Holy Spirit. So Ezekiel, in chapter 36, says, prophet says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Holy Spirit is the means by which God changes us from the inside out, by which he gives us a new heart and a new life, and then places his very presence within us. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Paul says, you are the temple. Old Testament tabernacle and temple. And then Jesus, and guess what? Now you are the temple, Paul says. 
You corporately, in 1 Corinthians 3, are the temple of the living God. You individually, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body because that's where God lives. Third question I said I would try to answer is, what does it do? What are the effects of the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit, we said, is the actual personal presence of God in those who have been redeemed by Christ that culminates in power for worship and witness. That culminates in power for worship and for witness. And I want you to listen in John 20, how Jesus puts the mission, Jesus sending his people, together with the Holy Spirit. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the Spirit is the means by which Jesus sends us. He was full of the Holy Spirit and embarked upon the ministry that he had for three years and then sends us, even so, as God has sent me, so send I you, he says. And then he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the means by which God gets us up and out on mission with him as witnesses, as representatives, sharing the gospel. That's what it means when it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That doesn't mean that you forgive sins. What it means is that you share the gospel. You dispense the gospel of Christ. And if you don't, some of those people will never hear. So we can't do these things on our own. The Spirit is necessary because He's the means by which we're empowered and fueled. And it's His very presence that makes us holy as worshipers and effective as witnesses. We need His power and we have it by means of the Spirit of God indwelling us and filling us. We need His love in order to love this world the way that he does. And the Bible says we have it by means of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured out, not eyedroppered, but poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, I hope I've convinced you this morning that you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. How can you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to start with a general principle. Larry said last week, he said, I really want you to know that it's important for you to welcome the Holy Spirit. I talked with him a couple of days ago. Larry, what do you want me to make sure I stress? He says, stress to our people that it's crucial for them to welcome the Holy Spirit into their lives. So in Luke 11, Jesus says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, for everyone who asks, receives. 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's the starting place, is asking, welcoming the Holy Spirit into your life, recognizing, I hope you do, your need for the presence of God. Now, in order to do that, some of you need to start at the beginning. You need to ask Jesus to save you. You need to turn from your sin, from self, from Satan to God, and put your hope and confidence in what Christ did for you on the cross, where he absorbed God's holy wrath. He took it so that you don't have to. Where he atoned and died for your sin, where he reconciled you with God, where you, God's enemy, can now become God's son or daughter. There are others of you here that need to stop grieving the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit, Spirit by your sins against him. Your sin and God's holiness will never go together. They don't fit together. They'll never fit together. This is the Holy Spirit. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit by inhabiting, by letting a particular pattern of sins inhabit and rule you. Some others of you need to stop quenching the Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Stop throwing water on the fire of the Spirit when He speaks, when He whispers, when He says something personal to you. When you ignore His prompts, you're quenching the Spirit. And some of you need to go to the filling station much more regularly. You run out of spiritual fuel. We all do. The Bible says that man cannot live on bread alone, but only on the Word of God. So let me give you some advice from a psychologist. Stop living like a spiritual anorexic. If you don't meet with God, if you don't listen to God in his word, which is not the only, but I believe the primary way by which God talks to you and speaks to you, communicates to you and fills you and empowers you and informs you, if you're not listening to God in his word, you're running on fumes. You are a spiritual anorexic. So some of you need to go to the filling station much more regularly. Spiritual practices, we call them, spiritual disciplines. These are things we do so that when the game's on, you're in shape and, and you can play effectively. So what refills your soul? What do you need to do so that God can, upon your asking and welcoming him, fill you again with his holiness and his power? And the last thing, some of you need to stop living like the Lone, the lone Ranger and get into a spiritual family. And that would be a church. Northwake would be a good start. And that would be more than one-stop shopping. More than Sunday morning only, but instead participation in all the other things that go on in this church. Life change, small groups, hanging out together, a variety of forms of ministry. Well, let me conclude with this passage at the end of Acts 2. 
And then we'll have Daniel come up and close us out. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself.